you know, the longer I do this, the longer I, you know, walk with Christ and, and, and uh, you know, be involved in professional ministry, the one thing that I've, I've noticed is I think the understanding that a lot of us have about the gospel, and, and even myself, is, is not up to par with, with what the gospel really means. And there's lots of uh, sort of angles you could take to describe the gospel, but I want to take a different one today, and I hope it's not too jarring for you. But if you read the book of Mark, it's hard not to, it, it, with this clue in mind, it's hard not to look at it as a war. And the language that Mark begins his gospel with, and then the stories that he tells, and the way he tells them, it's, it's hard not to see that he's leaving, he means to leave the impression that God is engaging in some kind of war. And, you know, War is an ugly thing. There's no doubt about that. And you know, when I was a kid, I grew up. Uh, our parents in my generation had all served in World War II. Uh, many of them had been in Korea. And the movies and TV shows were about their experience because they were, you know, the generation that all the advertisers were targeting. They were the generation that was telling the stories. And they came back after five plus years of war and then short period of peace and then the Korean War and then another short period of peace. And then, you know, as my generation grew up, as I got in high school, there was the Vietnam War. Well, war was just a part of what we experienced. My parents' generation lived it. I saw it on TV uh, every night. Uh, parents would come home, turn to, we'd eat dinner, turn the TV on, and there would be the national news talking about what was going on in Vietnam. And so war was just all around me. And the people that Mark wrote to, that was their experience too. Now, most of us, uh, you know, we've been, since 1991, in a series of conflicts. Our nation has been involved in the war on terror. Uh, and many of us know uh, veterans and, and families who've uh, lost loved ones, been injured, have served there and haven't been injured. I mean, there's people in our church who have kids that come to our church who were injured there and uh, they had to leave the service because of their injuries. And they still have some physical uh, challenges because of uh, injuries they sustained over there. And so, you know, war touches everybody. Uh, but we don't tend to see the gospel in any kind of a framework that has anything to do with war. And what I want to do today is show you that we need a better understanding of the gospel because I think we're, if we don't see it in the context that it's portrayed, a lot of what the gospel is meant to do in our lives and then, and then to do through our lives and a lot of the ways that it's supposed to shape the way we see the world is lost if we don't see that there's this, there's this war element. And so, in, in Mark chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, under the chair seat in front of you, there's a Bible, paperback Bible. And if you find uh, Mark 1, 
It's in the New Testament. And um, Mark 1 is page 694 in those paperbacks. And there's, I'm going to read this passage and then skip a few verses and read another passage that sort of summarized this first part of the first chapter. And then take you into this idea of the gospel as a, as, as a military campaign from God. So, and, and I want to show you three things that Mark says that imply that. And then we're going to, keep, we're going to start looking at one, the first example in the book of Mark that it sort of just stands out of that. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes into the story of John the Baptist. And then skip down to verse 14. And it says, After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is what he said. The time is come. The kingdom of God is near or at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now, there's, uh, there's three, uh, a vineyard pastor named Andrew Venter, South African pastor, uh, who's a scholar. He said there's three key elements that stand out in that little introduction there. There's, there's three words that, that Mark uses that... Uh, speak of something that God started and that it's about a war. First, he says, in the beginning, or excuse me, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, but there was a Hebrew uh, version of the New Testament that was Greek for Greek-speaking Jews that was called the Septuagint. And the word in Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning, God, is the same word that Mark used here and it implies that when Jesus came, God started a new creation. Just like in the beginning when God made everything and then there was the fall, God was starting this new creation in Jesus. And this new creation was going to, was going to begin to right what had been wrong. It was introducing God's will back into the world in, in, in a profound way. That something was going to happen through Jesus that was like a new creation. Okay? Secondly, he said the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and the word gospel was a political and military term that the Romans used, that the way it was used, it, when Caesar would, uh, when a new Caesar would be born, or do some, uh, something famous, or, or uh, Caesar would lead the Roman armies and into victory somewhere, they would send the heralds which were uh, sort of like their marketers that would explain what was going on in the Roman Empire for all the people, they would send them out and declare what Caesar had done because in, in, to the Romans, Caesar was Lord. And that word curios was, again, the Greek word that the Jews used for the one true God. The Romans used to describe Caesar. And so whenever Caesar was... Doing something great, Caesar would send people out to talk about it. And then oftentimes, uh, depending on where you lived in the Roman Empire, some of the spoils of war or the benefits, at least if, if nothing else, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, uh, would be experienced because the Romans would, you know, they would defeat the enemies of everybody and they would bring peace. 
And, and peace allows, and when there's order, it allows for prosperity. Because people are, you know, people are enterprising. And when you have some order, it gives people and their natural abilities to, to think and work and create. They begin to be able to uh, help the economy and, and bring value to their neighbors. And so the Roman peace was followed by prosperity generally. Now, it was prosperity to price, admittedly. They didn't quite have the same ideas of freedoms that we have today, but they had some that were greater than, you know, most anybody had known before them. So Caesar was Lord. Well, the language that the, Christian use, the Christians used to describe and that Jesus himself used was language that was political and military. That Jesus was coming on the scene and, and he was the rabbi carpenter of an occupied territory, and he and his followers were saying, he is the Lord, which is kind of ridiculous because he wasn't famous, he wasn't educated, he wasn't anything more than what we see in the Gospels. But what he was was amazing and overwhelming, and everything he asserted, he backed up. Now, and people that wanted to embrace his kingdom welcomed him. People that, that didn't and didn't want his life and his way they didn't welcome him. And eventually, you know, people that didn't welcome him rejected him and they killed him. But the gospel was this word, and in a sense, what God was saying is, I'm coming to make war against evil through my son. That he's coming to begin, not just to make a new creation, but he's beginning to come to challenge evil in all of its forms. And that's what the rest of the book of Mark does. Is it just, you just, it's, it's this unfolding military campaign where Jesus goes someplace and there's a confrontation between two kingdoms. The rule of God through Jesus and some form of evil. And boom. Uh, we're going to look at one here in a second. And it's, it's kind of a surprising one. And then... In Mark 1, 14 and 15, he says, Now is the time you've all been waiting for. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. And so Jesus says, the kingdom is here. And then he casts out demons. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He cleanses lepers. He uh, conquers out-of-control nature. He multiplies food and provides for people. He challenges unjust systems. I mean, he just... Everywhere you see evil, Jesus went and challenged it. And it was a war. It was a war. It was, this, it was waged, you know, in the, old, in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. And there's a, a picture of a lamb on the throne, and there's a term that's, that's, that's emerged out of the book of Revelations where God comes and engages in the war of the Lamb. And it's kind of this crazy, you know, it's like an angry lamb. I don't know. Have you ever seen a lamb before? They're like just the mellowest little creatures. And it's hard to imagine a lamb making war. And it was hard for people to imagine the God of Israel, the God of all creation, who came as a humble carpenter in 
an occupied community. It, 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 was, it, was, it was almost too much for them to accept. And, and a lot of people didn't. Because they had this idea that the war that God was going to wage was going to get rid of all evil immediately. Not just, it's just, get, not just introduce the means of get ridding, getting rid of all evil. It was going to do it right then. But that didn't happen. But that's not, as you read the scriptures, that's not what God said he was going to do. So we'll get to that. So the word healing, which we use, we throw around, healing is a, a real specific word, but it's used in multiple ways. So when I say that healing is kingdom war against evil in all its forms, you can, you'll see as you go through the New Testament, as we go through just the book of Mark over the next few weeks, everywhere you see evil, God comes to heal it. Now, the word healing is often translated to salvation or save because it's the same Greek word. And so the, the, the translators used this word interchangeably because to, to be forgiven of your sins is to be healed from your sins. To be healed from your sickness is to be saved from your sickness. Healing, salvation, be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered. These are words that all go back to the same root word, sozo, in Greek. And Jesus, his Hebrew name was Yeshua, which means God is salvation. And so he came to bring salvation everywhere it was needed. But where it was needed was where evil was in control. And it was where evil was entrenched. And we just tend to think of evil as in a certain form. But salvation is, a, is this... Like, salvation is not just the forgiveness of your sins. It's not just punching your ticket to heaven. That's what salvation is described as to most people. Mo many churches... Like the church my mom uh, settled in after she came to Christ, that was pretty much what they were being taught is your, your sins are forgiven and, and you're guaranteed of getting in the, through the pearly gates. And that's part, certainly it's a, it's a big part. It's the ultimate healing is the forgiveness of our sins, like we said last week, the healing of our relationship with God. But that is minimizing in the worst way the gospel of God, the good news of God, the message of Jesus Christ. Because everywhere evil is touched, you're going to see Jesus goes there and overcomes it. And it's still present today. But the problem is that, that the church doesn't want to recognize that, we're, that God's still at war with evil. Because, you know, war is costly. War is challenging. War is upsetting and, and frustrating and, but you can't you can't look at the, the idea of the way that a lot of people understand the gospel and try to find that picture in the New Testament or in like in the gospels or in all the epistles and the, the writings of the early church they just had this other idea that they'd experienced because when Jesus came on the scene it just caught everybody's attention 
And it amazed them, it surprised them, it challenged them. And so salvation, uh, John Wimber had this definition. He said, this was his definition. He said, to be saved out from under the devil's power and restored into the wholeness of God's order and well-being by the power of God's spirit. And it, it just means that it's salvation in every dimension of life. It's, it, it means that salvation has implications for your emotional life. It has implications for your relational life. It has implications economically. It has implications for our bodily existence. It has implications for the, the spiritual world that, we, that we're all a part of, even if in America we don't believe it or we're really confused about it. It has implications for every dimension of life. And that Jesus is Lord over all of that. Okay? All of it. He's Lord over your broken foot. He's Lord over your broken heart. He's Lord over your broken checkbook. He's Lord over your broken family. He's Lord over our broken government. He's Lord over all of it. And when John, uh, I mean, sorry, when uh, Mark and the apostles write about Jesus, they, they're not trying to make him any more dramatic and amazing than he, than he is. They just are telling his story. And it's one of those stories, if you read it and you read it with any sense of looking at the context and the world and trying to put yourself into it, it just takes your breath away. You go, whoa, wow. Nobody is like this person. Now, we have become accustomed to, you know, as the, as the saying goes, familiarity can breed contempt. And I'm not saying any of us have contempt for Jesus or, or the Gospels, but they can be so familiar that the wonder of who Jesus is and the fact that he's still the same today and, it, and he's going to be the same tomorrow and forever and that as he was here in what we're reading, he means to be the same to us today. And that he is still at war with evil. Well, I want to look at one of the forms, and we're going to look at a few. There's, I think there's, there's six main ones that, that the, bark, the, the book of Mark touches on. But if the kingdom of God is the rule of God that comes into the world through Jesus. It's where God's influence is seen and experienced in a dynamic way. Where God is at work. If that's what it is, then what we, we're bound to see is when that power comes into the room, it's going to challenge this, the entrenched power of evil wherever it is. Okay, wherever it is. So turn with me in Mark chapter 1 to verse 20. This is, and now you have to understand, this is the first one that Mark wrote. And some of you are going to read this and go, why do we have to talk about that in church? Because it's in the book. It's in the book. And, it, and, it, and it, don't be surprised if this isn't something that, you know, you see or you experience at some point in your life. So it says that they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, we're at verse 21, excuse me. They went to Capernaum, 
And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So there's something about Jesus' teaching that was so compelling. It wasn't, it wasn't boring. It wasn't uh, like what they were used to. It was different. There was something about Jesus that like the air crackled around him. And so they were amazed at what he taught. So it says, just then. So let's say normal Sunday, someone's up here at the platform speaking, and all of a sudden this happens. So let's put ourselves in the synagogue. Synagogues could be small, they could be large, they could have several, they could have more people than we have in this room. But synagogues were where pious Jews went to worship and pray and hear the law and, and to, to surrender themselves to God, to, to follow through on the, on the teachings of Moses and, and to let those teachings, you know, speak to them. And so these were serious people about their faith. Right in the middle of the synagogue, okay? Everybody's in there. It's, it, whatever the, the customs were, you can imagine yourself in that. It says, just then, a man in their synagogue who was, or it literally says, who had an evil spirit or an unclean spirit cried out, what do you want with us? I wish I could do the voices here. I really, like have, like, you know, just like put the little thing on my throat and, and do the, do the spiritual, creepy voice sound side, you know, uh, effect. Just then, he says, what do you want to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently. So he just physically went into some sort of, it looked like a fit or a seizure, and came out of him with a shriek. You ever been in a real quiet place and all of a sudden, you know, someone just screams? It, I've only had it happen a couple of times, but it, it, let me tell you, it, it gets you out of your seat. You, you, all of you have been in a movie theater where there's a surprise scene that, that gets you, right? Anybody not been in one before? I, recently, I was with a movie with my daughter, and I could see it coming. And Bethy was sitting right beside me, and we're watching it, and I'm thinking to myself, at that moment, I, just, I, I stopped looking at the screen and I, and I looked at the crowd around me because I just wanted to see what everybody did. And then it happened. I mean, people, there were people that just went, ah! I just screamed and jumped out of their seats. And I was just sitting there. And Bethy, she, 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 did, she like levitated out of her seat, grabbed my arm, you know, my right arm. My arm went up like this with her. <laughs> and she turned and looked at me and she said, Dad, didn't that scare you? <laughs> And I don't know, you know, when you see it coming, it, it's not as scary. But it's, it's still, I did feel a little bit because of all the people around me. Because, I mean, people just, like, they screamed with the, the picture. Well, imagine if you're in church. I mean, you go to a horror movie, you know it's coming, don't you? Right? Do you go to church to experience that? No way. But wherever Jesus goes... Wherever he goes, the kingdom of God goes, 
And there was a man in the synagogue who was under the power of, of demonic forces. And so when Jesus came in the room and he began to teach, Satan's power was exposed. Now, that's kind of freaky. I've seen it before. I remember in England once. It's happened in our church, but I remember in England once uh, on a ministry team with John Wimber. We were in uh, London and in this big arena, 9,000 people. And John had finished teaching and we had a break and we came back. And uh, he said, okay, we're going to have a clinic time. We're going to pray for the sick. and We're going to pray for whatever God shows us to pray for. And there's 9,000 people there and I'm up in the stands. It's, it, uh, it was in Wembley Arena. And uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like an indoor uh, venue. And so they have stands that went around it. But they, it, they weren't very tall. But they were real steep. I remember how, gosh, it was like, I was afraid I was going to like fall. And John prayed, and it got really quiet. And the sense of God's presence just flooded the room. And, I, and, and like I was sitting there as John's praying. And I'm, you know, I'd seen a lot of things happen over the years. And it was real quiet. And it was very, very uh, heavy with God's presence. And then John said, okay, uh, yeah, I can already feel it. He said, now, the, you know, the Spirit's going to begin to move now, and we're going to let God lead us in, on who to pray for. And he said, this is wait. He said, here, you know, here comes the sense of the Spirit of God. And it was like I was sitting in the, the, the length of the room, and the platform was up here. And it was like this wind blew through the room from the back to the front and you could see people like visibly react it was the the presence of God just went through and he goes did you sense that that was God and he goes he's going to come again now he's going to be more powerful and then it, it went again like this and it was like someone just hit buttons and about 50 people across this room demonized people just stood up at once and started screaming at once like it was rehearsed and it was just like that horror movie i mean people around were like freaked out and and john and john john's really calm he'd seen it a lot he just said don't worry that's you know that's just the enemy god's here and he's he's gonna set people free and it was just like a few chairs down from me this man was flipping out well this happened in a synagogue among pious people and you think, how, how does that happen? How, how, how does a person get invaded or controlled? Because the, 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 what the text says is demon-possessed. And, and frankly, the new, newer translations are not using that word anymore. Because the, in the Greek, it means to be acted upon by an unclean spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean to be in control. Because when you, when you think of possession, you think of someone who, you know, I possess this phone. I have it under my control. The, the idea of a, of a demon acting upon us goes on a spectrum from being tempted on one end way over to the idea of being controlled by. Now, a follower of Jesus can't be controlled, but they can be strongly influenced. And there can be areas of our life because of disobedience that the enemy just controls us like or uses us like a puppet. But 
there's this range of temptation all the way over here to being strongly influenced includes being harassed, physical influences, mental illness. It, it can affect every part of our life, our money, our relationships, our children and spouses. Our life is an arena. It's not just this little compartment I live in. It, our lives don't necessarily look the way our Western categories tell us. And Jesus comes, and when the kingdom comes, it, it runs up against the kingdom of darkness within us. And sometimes we're, we're, we're not used to recognizing that demons actually work on us and afflict us and disturb us and harass us. And that whole world is weirdly fascinating, but it's not supposed to be fascinating. It's like the Bible gives us enough knowledge about evil to deal with it. It doesn't want us to look at it like it's a hobby, right? Like, I collect demon stories. You know, they're really cool. No, no, no. When you run into demons, it's not cool. It's ugly. It's horrible. What they do is painful. But there is a weird side of us. That, that likes strange things. I mean, we do. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> The Shining wouldn't still be popular today if we didn't like weird stuff and stories about things that are scary and unusual. But they're not meant to entertain us. They're meant to inform us. Do you understand? We need to understand these things. Before warned is to be forearmed. But Jesus... This little story tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that the demons are real. There is supernatural evil, supernatural personal evil. Now, you can dismiss it, and I'm not saying you have to buy this, uh, but I think you should, you should think about it and be open to it because I think, again, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, and, and maybe in your experience you haven't seen anything like that. You've wondered, is there anything, you know, You've seen enough things on certain uh, of the fringe channels of cable to make you wonder, is, uh, you know, is there stuff out there that, I, that doesn't fit in my experience? Clearly, uh, there probably is. God gives us a framework to understand that stuff. But Jesus said demons exist. They're supernatural spiritual beings that are evil, that exist. And here in this story, he says there are enemies Jesus, who is considered to be the force for good in history of all time, these enemies, these, these spirits recognize him as coming to destroy them. That he was coming to undo what the, the, the damage that they had done. And they were afraid of him. There was their personalities, there was fear there. They talk. And they recognized him. Now, the story you're going to get that goes all the way through the gospel of Mark and all the gospels and all the, the whole story of the Bible is, all these stories, Jesus is the focus of the kingdom of God. When they came, when these demons manifested, they didn't start talking about, oh, the holy book of God or the holy church and temple of God. They said, 
Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. He was the focus. He was the one who was bringing the kingdom of God. He was the king. And the demons felt his power because he's the creator. The creator had, bec- had come into his creation. And he was going to make war against everything that was ruining his creation. And so this spirit was exposed. And it said, leave us alone, leave us alone. And all Jesus said was, be quiet, come out now. And the spirit left. The spirit shook him for a while and then left. And the man, there, there's plenty of other stories. This one doesn't tell us much about the man in the aftermath, except everyone was amazed. And they all recognized, because they came from a worldview that's different than ours, that, that the spiritual realm exists, that God is good, but that part of what he made has gone into the dark side and it's antagonistic to God and His will and to us that wanted to surrender to God's will and walk with Him and that Jesus comes to defeat that realm. And, and as you'll see as we go through the book, He did it on the cross, but He had power over it even before the cross. So here in the synagogue, everybody's worldview, even though they believed in the demonic, They saw it in a new way. Because they thought, in our turf, the enemy won't bother us here. Right? They'd all seen demons in public. If you go into into the developing world, you'll see demonic things in public. We don't see that as much. I mean, it does happen. I've seen demons manifest in public. It's wild. It happened in, in front of my... Uh, neighbor's house once in the campus when we were planting the church. I won't tell you the whole story, but my neighbor started coming out as we were casting demons out of this girl. And it was wild. It was crazy. The police came. It was... It's another story for another time, but... Uh, that was my first, like, mano imano moment with the demonic. I'd encountered it before, you know, in quiet ways. But nothing quite that public. And we all have this sense of, like in your home, if your doors are locked, you know, and the windows are locked, and you go over and you beep, 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 you know, your, your alarm is on, you can sit in your nice, comfortable chair and not worry about the weird stuff like this. That's how those people in the synagogue felt. Well, they got disabused of that notion pretty soundly, don't you think? And they realized there's no DMZ from this. That our souls are the battleground. All of existence is the battleground between the kingdom of God and this kingdom of darkness. And when Jesus came, everywhere he went, I I want to encourage you just to go start reading through the book of Mark this week. We're not going to go all the way through it. We're just going to look at six stories. But what you'll notice is this theme of conflict. That wherever Jesus goes, there's some form of evil that he is confronting. And he is addressing and he is healing the people who, who are oppressed by that evil. Sometimes it's their own sin. Other times it's sickness. Other times it's nature. Other times it's government. Other times it's other people. 
All, there's all kinds of things that, that, that become uh, the tool of evil. And Jesus confronts each one of them. And so, when Satan is described, he's described as the God of this world. There's a lot of terms for him. He's described as the God of this world, as the ruler of this present evil age. And again, this is this kingdom language that the, that the New Testament uses to say God's kingdom is coming and he's declared that this present evil age is now shrinking and diminishing and it's going to pass away. And I like to remind you of the, the, the picture, the dream that, that Daniel interpreted of the great king Nebuchadnezzar who had a dream about this great statue. And, and the statue was awesome and amazing. And then the king saw in his dream one night, and, and Daniel interpreted this when no one else could, a little stone that was not made with human hands. And it struck the statue at the feet, and the statue just shattered and then became dust and then just was blown away. And as that happened, the little stone became a little hill and then a, a, a little bigger hill and, a, and then became a mountain that filled the earth. And so you see this picture of the, the kingdoms of this world, this present evil age, having this encounter with the kingdom of God, because that's what you find out is this, the stone is about, and they begin to decrease and this kingdom begins to increase. But it, 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 the picture is not a picture of just a, a peaceable transfer of power from the dark side to the good side. It's, a, it's this conflict and battle. And Jesus came as God into the world, and we rejected him and killed him. There's the picture, right? The conflict. And he kept saying to people, so there were points where his followers wanted to pick up arms, and he said, don't do that. That's not how this battle is going to be won. That, that, that wasn't saying anything about force at all. But it was saying about how God was going to use him at that moment in time. So, how does this, the God of this world, we'll close with a couple of thoughts. How does the God of this world and these spiritual forces of wickedness invade our lives in all these ways and begin to act on us in ways that harm us. It's, it's really simple. And I think it's, it's so simple that it, it, it escapes us. It, it's obvious. Is God told the first people and then everybody since, I have a will for your life if you live under that will, it's like the enemy can't do these things to you. But if you step out of my will, you are giving him permission because there's, there's two kingdoms. There's my kingdom and there's his kingdom. And Jesus said through his apostles that by faith, when we meet Jesus, he delivers us from this kingdom and puts us under his kingdom, which is under his rule. 
Now, we still live in a world that's marked with suffering and violence and injustice and pain and trouble, and our lives are affected by that. But the enemy doesn't have the power to do all that he wants to do to us. There is trouble living in this world, so we're going to experience trouble and temptation. But God promises over and over, just, like, just take temptation for an example. He says, I'm not going to let you get tempted like you used to get tempted. And not only that, I'm not going to let the devil tempt you beyond what you're able. And not only that, if I do allow temptation to come into your life to build your character, I will give you a way of escape so that you don't have to surrender to it. But if you're in his kingdom, you're just putty in his hands. The, the, the powers of darkness just push you this way, they push you this way, they pull you this way, they push you that way. They do whatever they want with you, and you're cooperating with them. Because when you say, God, I don't want your will, I want to live life on my terms, he says, well, then you're over here in this camp. Now, you can be a follower of Jesus and foolishly do that. It doesn't not make you a follower of Jesus. It just makes you a follower of Jesus who's opened themselves up to anything the enemy wants to do to you up to a certain point. Now, this is, that's a, I just made a theological point that re requires more explanation than I'm going to be able to give you here. Uh, at some point, we could talk about details of that. I just want to tell you, there isn't anybody here in this room including myself, that there aren't areas of your life that you're not as free as you're meant to be. It's just true. We're all struggling with areas in our life where we're meant to be free. We long for freedom. We don't want these two desires to be constantly pulling inside us. Do you understand what I mean? If, if, if there was a person, let's, let's say that man that had this spirit, in the synagogue, was sitting in this front chair or sitting anywhere in this room, people would have looked at his life and would have looked at some of the kind of contradiction of, of, of a person who claimed to be a you know, follower of the one true God. But there was stuff in his life that just didn't seem like it looked like that. And it, it could have been any number of areas of his life. But when... The kingdom of God came and Christ entered that synagogue. What was inside him came out. And what tends to happen, there are little idiot lights in your life that go off in the presence of the kingdom of God. You don't have to be as oppressed as that man is to still be affected and being acted on by darkness. You don't. And, you know, as we've sat here today and, and worshipped, uh, one of the things I was praying, you know, was thinking about teaching this, is that I, I just asked that, that God would just begin to help us to feel unsettled in those areas and begin to ask questions. Is that an area of my life, Lord, that I used to long for more freedom in, but I don't anymore because I just didn't seem like I got it? I, I didn't seem like God ever had any answers for me. Uh, I was talking to someone this morning, and uh, they were telling me about an acquaintance of theirs who's an AA, and how this person had had a terrible 
problem with alcohol for a long time, to the point where they couldn't go more than a couple of hours without swigging down a, a, a large amount of alcohol. Over and over and over. And this had gone on for years. To the point where they were, they were a, a, a fourth stage alcoholic. Which is like, the, that's the stage you get in and you start dying. And they went to AA. And they're not believers. But they believed. They heard the story of AA. The stories of people who were there. And one of the things was. They said, that the AA says is. You've got to believe that God is able to remove things from your character so you can be free. And you need to submit to God to do that because you're powerless. That's part of what you learned is you're powerless, and that's what we know. It's a gospel teaching. AA emerged out of Christians' teaching. The people who, who formed and developed AA, the Oxford group, they were fire-breathing, radical Christians. Uh, they would fit in the vineyard or in any movement that's even more on fire than we are. Uh, over time, you know, they've maybe removed some language that, that some people are concerned about. But people still go to AA, and this is what they experienced. This person said, God, I can't stop drinking. Would you remove the desire from me? And God removed the desire to drink from them. And they haven't had a desire for a long time now. And they stopped drinking. Boom! And they haven't drunk since. And they were a person that we prayed for for a long time in, in the mornings here when we pray at the vineyard. God can do things like that for us. But see, if you're going to drink, you're going to put yourself under the power of the dark one. And it's going to extract a cost from your life. It's, and what I just prayed for this morning is that, that God would stir up in, in anyone here that has an area of your life where you don't have the freedom that you think you should in Christ. That you would become less content with that. Because there was a time in your life where you were desperate and you were more discontent about that area of your life being out of control and to some degree. God wants us to be free. Jesus came into that synagogue and he nailed this demon and set this man free, and the people were ecstatic. Because if you care about one another, you care about the, 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 the burdens and the, the things that we bear and that we carry around that control our lives and make us less than what we're meant to be. Uh, Scott, would you come up? So I want to ask you today, just in closing, and next week, not next week, uh, two weeks, Jay's going to teach next week. Uh, if, if healing is kingdom warfare against evil in all its forms, including demons, and the demonic can interact with our lives in, in really unpleasant ways at, at, at many levels of our lives, but there are idiot lights that go off in our life that if we pay attention to them, let us know that we're being oppressed, we're being attacked by the evil one. And that two things are necessary. One, we have to repent. Because what Jesus said when the kingdom of God was here, his message was re, the kingdom is here, repent and believe the gospel. The good news that God is coming in Jesus, his son. 
And that his government, his kingdom, is breaking in to the world. And it's available to break into the lives of those who are willing to receive it. But to receive it, we have to repent, which means to change our minds. It means to take a different perspective. And sometimes, well, there's lots of ways that new perspective looks. But it means we have to begin to embrace God's terms for how life is supposed to work. And that there isn't anybody whose world isn't rocked by that. Do you understand that? We all have little categories for sin that we think some sins are worse than others. And it's all the same. It all messes our lives up. And sin is really personal. The things that we want to hold on to look real bad to somebody else and, and their sins don't look as bad to them. And then when you turn around and look the other way, that person's sins don't seem that bad. The other person's one. They got the bad sins. But all that stuff that we give ourselves to, we have to rethink it and redefine it. Now, that's a process. Nobody changes overnight. We all are, are, are broken people in the eyes of God. All of us. And some of us, some of you here, your brokenness is your self-righteousness. I love you, but that, that's your brokenness. It's your sense that you're a little better than other people because you don't struggle with the things that they struggle with. And God says, that is the problem. That is your problem. And you need to see that is just as bad as the drunk or the thief or the greedy materialist or the pimp or whatever other kind of you know, moral category that you look at. Our self-righteousness keeps us from being the people we're meant to be. And self-righteous people are the devil's playground. The devil loves self-righteousness. He loves religious people. Because they're like the people in the synagogue who thought the devil will never come in here because we're all so pious and good. And, and we're glad we're so pious and good and that the bad people stay away from us. The devil goes, oh, I love that attitude. That's the attitude that gives me the most room. Because he always likes to work in an unseen way. Those people need to repent. So in your life, if, if there's an area in your life where you need freedom, there's repentance that's called for in your life. In some way, you're going to have to sort this out before the Lord. You might not know what it is right now. But if you're going to ask God for freedom, I want to pray for you. We're going to pray for one another here for a minute. You're going to have to be willing to start on a journey that includes repentance. And it's one of the best things in the world. 